following audio is from a sermon series called Identity Formation. As we study through the book of Ephesians, our aim is to get an understanding about what is most true about us when our identity is found in Jesus Christ. As we understand our gospel identity, we learn that our being informs our doing. Ephesians is all about identity formation. For more information on Sacred City Church, visit scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Ephesians 6, 5 through 9. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. This is the word of the Lord. 95,680. 95,680. That is the number of hours that a typical American will work in their lifetime. 95,680. Now, when you do the math, that's nearly 4,000 full days, like not 12-hour days, 24-hour days of work. 4,000 full days of work, which totals up to nearly 11 years of your life spent at work. That's a major portion of your life. And when you factor into the reality that um, almost double that time is spent sleeping and the first 18 to 24 years of your life are in preparation to enter the workforce in some capacity, you can say that a huge chunk of our wakeful life is spent at work. Now, work isn't necessarily an exciting topic. In fact, a lot of us come in uh, to the weekend ready to distance ourselves from our work, ready for break, right? Uh, we're trying to forget that place. That it was chaos through Monday through Friday. We just want to step back, kind of chill out a little bit. And what happens when we distance ourselves from our work in that way, there's a sense where we make this, this false dichotomy between the secular, my work being secular, sort of detached from God and the sacred of, of this sort of Sabbath day of worship and rest. And so we make this distinction, this separation between the two. But Christianity is a whole life religion, meaning that every aspect, every facet of your life, when you come to a saving faith in Jesus, is now transformed. That the gospel bears weight on every moment of your life. Every, every arena, every facet, every little nook and cranny. And this especially affects our work. Now, since a huge part of our life is spent working, that means that a big part of our discipleship is trying to understand and living into our gospel identity in the workplace. And what I want to show you this morning is that the gospel, or when the gospel transforms our hearts, it's going to transform our workplaces. Now, this is crucial. We, we've mentioned this a couple times already, that the mission at Sacred City Church is to make disciples, plan churches, and renew the city. So part of discipleship is, is understanding how the gospel impacts my work, but also 
understanding how the gospel impacts my work is part of renewing the city. So if we're going to bring our mission at Sacred City Church to life, we have to understand how the gospel affects our, our work. Now, when I say renew the, renew the city, a lot of people tend to think like, hey, okay, you're talking about putting flowers and planters, and you're going to paint some, some pretty murals around town, kind of spruce up the place. Right, maybe maybe uh, start a food pantry or do something along along, along those lines, and, and yes to those things. Right, we, we want to beautify our city, but there is something much deeper, more profound that we are envisioning when we say we want to renew the city. We are, are, are imagining that God works in such a way that he changes the culture of our city. And I think one of the ways, one of the main ways the culture of our city is changed is by changing the culture of our workplaces. And the way that our workplaces are changed is that when God changes our hearts. And so what I want to, in saying that the gospel, when the gospel transforms our hearts, it transforms our, our work, I want to show you four indicators, four characteristics of a heart that has been changed by the gospel in regards to our, our work. So if you want to open up with me to Ephesians chapter 6, um, we'll, we'll be in verses 5 through 9 today, which we're read. And as you look at this, Paul is really talking to two groups of people, which really would cover most of, of the people in the room, okay? He's talking to, to bond servants and masters, or, or in other words, maybe a more closest modern parallel relationship that we have would be a boss and a subordinate or an employee and an employer. Um, there, there's a lot of nuance in this masters and bond servants thing. I just don't have time to press into that, but if you are interested in this, hey, what does he mean by servants? What does he mean by masters? Um, back when we preached through the book of Colossians, which Colossians and Ephesians has a lot of parallels here, um, I went more into depth. So you can go through our sermon archives, find that. Um, but I want to talk specifically and get into some of the practicalities here of this relationship between the boss and the subordinate, employee and employer. Um, and, and basically what he's indicating here is the relationship that is a non-familial position of authority. So that there's somebody who has a, a given authority that is meant to operate and work in a way that reigns, that, that is a, a lord or an underlord that gives direction and leadership and oversight somebody else. And so this could apply to the workplace, and it could also apply with the relationship between a teacher and a student if you want to work out the implications a bit further. And what Paul does in, in addressing bondservants and masters, he starts with addressing the bondservants, those who are subordinate to their masters. Now, when Paul does this, he is not picking on them. In fact, he spends a lot of time talking to the bondservants and only like one, like what is it, four verses to bondservants, one, one, one verse to the masters. Paul is not picking on them. What he's doing is actually dignifying them by addressing them specifically. He's saying to them, now here, here's part of the cultural dynamic here, that if you were a bondservant, you were, you were viewed as a peon. You were a small person. You were insignificant. You just were like the bottom rung of society. And so a lot of times um, when it comes to this household code and, and like how households are structured, the servant would be overlooked. They wouldn't even be talked to because they were so low on the rung that why even speak to them? Well, Paul is actually doing that. He's elevating them and dignifying them. He's saying, 
Yes, you may have a, unappreciated, a job that's unappreciated. You might have a lowly position, but in speaking to you first, Paul sees you, and also God sees you. Your work matters to God. You aren't just a nobody. Now, this is something that you might find yourself doubting on occasion. You, you, you come to the end of a long week and say, does does what I do even matter? Like, does my work make any kind of impact? Does God care about what I'm doing with 40 hours of my week? Is it, is it doing anything to contribute to any kind of change? And Paul says, yes, it does. From the lowliest of positions to the most prestigious work, whether you're bagging groceries or building rocket ships. It all matters to God. Not only does it matter to God, but it matters to the rest of society. Can you imagine if all of the custodial staff in the Quad Cities just said, I'm done doing my job? We would all die from dysentery, folks. That work matters. It matters to society, and it matters to God. God's eyes are on the lowliest of workers. And when we find ourselves doubting that and stop believing that our work matters to the rest of society and to God, we start going through the motions. Start kind of phoning in our work. Now, this is what it might look like. You might, you might punch in late. If I'm supposed to be there at 8 a.m., I kind of stumble in 8.15, rub the sleep out of my eyes. I'm half awake, just sort of, I don't know, it's like I'm a zombie almost, fumbling my way through the day. Um, there's a word for it, um, desultory. Does anybody know what that means? No, I had to look it up. You know what it means? It means doing a job half-assed. I can say that because the word's in the Bible. But it's like doing it to a degree that is less than satisfying. You complain. You got a lousy attitude. You're doing the bare minimum just so you can get a check. So that's an evidence that, that we are forgetting that our work actually matters. Now, if you make this your pattern, if this sort of behavior where you're sort of just phoning in your work, you're not really putting best, your, your best effort forward, you will perpetuate your own unhappiness and contribute to the misery around you. You'll negatively affect your coworkers, right? Your, your attitude about work will bring them down. You will underserve, if you're in the service industry, you will underserve your patrons, right? Those people who are coming who basically provide the money for you to have a job, right? You'll underserve them. You'll treat them like they're, they're a hassle. And you're definitely underserving your employer. You're not giving them your best. Now, this sort of behavior is antithetical to renewing the city, if we want our city to stay the way that it is, everybody should just go and take this attitude back to your workplaces with you. Not only will things stay the same, it'll just sort of spiral down and become very, very unpleasant from here on out. And because Paul has the same vision that we have for renewing the city, for making an impact, for bringing life to the city. 
Paul confronts these tendencies that we have when we think that our work is insignificant. And he goes in in verse 5. He says this. Look at this. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Now, the way that we avoid this sort of, this bad work ethic is by going to work with a sincere heart. He says, obey your masters with a sincere heart. Just change that word out. Obey your boss. Listen to your employer. Do what they said. And he says, not just as a way of eye service, not just as a way of of going through the motions, but from the heart, he says. Now, to to work from the heart doesn't mean you're lovey-dovey about your job. That you just sort of ooze over it and you just, it 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 doesn't mean it has to be that. Not everybody is going to be in love with the work that they do. But even in the work that you don't love doing, you can still do it with a sincere heart, with a level of genuinity. That's not a word, but I made it up. With genuineness. Like there's a sense of integrity. Like, like you, because your heart is in it, you can act accordingly. And so you don't just comply and obey the rules of sort of like going through the motions. It's not about a performance, but you earnestly engage with your work. You do the work genuinely. And this is what Paul is getting at when he says to do it with fear and trembling. He's not talking about being a coward. He's not talking about like literally uh, being in terror of those who are over you in authority. He's talking about having a real respect. See, that that fear and trembling is is a phrase that basically gets connected to God. You enter God's presence in fear and trembling. It's awe, it's reverence, it's worship, it's it's acknowledgement of, of respect for that party. And so Paul says, go in and obey with fear and trembling, with a real respect, with a real honor for your superior, which basically, if you want to go back to um, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, that starts out this whole cadence of husbands and wives and parents and children and, and, and bosses and employees, the, the overarching um, command is submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. See, it's about reverence. It's about respect. And because we respect and revere Christ, we can show respect to those who are placed in authority above us. See, that's what a sincere, obeying with a sincere heart is about. It comes from a genuine place. But when we have a sincere heart, which, by the way, that's the first S of what kind of a heart, what what kind of a heart the gospel produces. If you're taking notes, I never do this. This is very unfamiliar for me to to, to lay it out like this. But a sincere heart is the first S. In its genuineness, in its sincerity, a sincere heart also has a singleness of purpose, meaning that it is not compromised. It is not motivated by false motive or ulterior motive. It is not deceitfully operating in order to gain favor from others around, whether it's the boss or coworkers. There is a singleness in its purpose, which is to work in a way that pleases both the boss and the Lord. 
And so Paul says, listen, you cannot do this. You cannot have singleness of purpose and operate in the way of eye service. Now, what is eye service? This is a, this is a, a phrase that um, actually is a, it's unique to Paul. Um, even in, in, in the uh, first century, this was not necessarily a phrase that got used a lot. But, but what he's talking about is that you only follow through when your boss's eyes are on you. I'm a poet. You only follow through when your boss's eyes are on you. That's what eye service is. So when your boss isn't around, you're okay kind of sloughing off, going through the motions, doing the bare minimum, and sometimes maybe not even that. But then as soon as your boss steps foot in the room, you're like, you're like the all-star employee, right? Now, there are two problems with this. Well, actually three. Number one, you're making your work about you. Right? You're trying to draw attention to yourself. Now, the other problem with this is that if you do this, if you operate in the way of eye service, you make for a terrible coworker. Your coworkers will not like you because they'll see you sloughing off, and who's going to have to pick up the slack? Well, they will. They feel like they've got to step up, take care of that. And then in front of your boss, you're this all-star, and all of a sudden, maybe, maybe your boss recognizes that and giving you praise. You're not going to win your coworkers over. They're not going to think highly of you because of this. Now, the underlying problem with this is to, that when you are operating in the way of eye service, you lack total integrity. Integrity means the same all the way through. Sincerity is another way of saying it. So basically, if, you're in, if you are doing eye service, you're operating the way of eye service, you are basically being two-faced. One way when the boss is around, one way when he's gone or she's gone. You're being two-faced. There's no integrity there, which integrity is a key characteristic for Christians. So here when Paul says, obey with a sincere heart, he's saying, listen, yeah, from the heart obey, right? Show real respect, but also obey even when your boss isn't hovering over your shoulder. So the first thing that he says is, hey, you can't, the, the way of eye service is not in the way of the gospel. This is, this is antithetical to gospel work. Now, he says there's another thing that's also antithetical to gospel work, and Paul says in verse 6, is to be people pleasers. And, and what he means here is that you esteem your boss so highly. So, so maybe you do have a real reverence and a real honor for your employee, but it's a way that has been uh, elevated, that is disproportionate to your allegiance to God. So you esteem your boss so highly and you are so eager to please him that you are willing to compromise in obedience to Jesus, in obedience to God. Now, this happens a lot, honestly. If you think about this, really break it down, like our tendencies to move into people-pleasing, it's really quite a slippery slope. And I think one of the reasons that we do this is because we are people who are addicted to applause. Work is one of the easiest ways for us to be validated. 
right? You go to work, you work hard, you put in the hours, you do a good job, right? Somebody's going to notice. Somebody's going to say, hey, you did great work. You're going to maybe see a, a monetary benefit that comes from that hard work. And so you can, it's an easy place for you to feel validated. And what happens a lot of times is we move into work. We just get consumed by our work because we can get that sort of payout of validation much easier than we can in other areas of our life. And so you, you might throw yourself into work in order to get that validation, and at the same time, you're escaping the areas of life where you might feel like you're failing. Specifically, if you go back up within the context of, of uh, chapter 6 and the, the second half of chapter 5, within parenting and within marriage. See, a lot of times, work is way more concrete Right? It's much more clear what my objective is when I go to work, and I can succeed at that. But when it comes to these other things, it's not as concrete. It's harder. There's a lot more nuance. Now, if, if you get swept into the stream of, of people pleasing, what happens is it makes you vulnerable to being taken advantage of by your employer. They can start asking you to put in long hours because right? they know if they ask you, you're going to say yes. You, you, it would, you would feel crushed if you had to disappoint your boss. And so they keep asking for more and more of you so that your work life will now dominate your family and church life. You'll have to start making trade-offs here. We see you less and less. Your family sees you less and less because work has consumed so much of your life. And when that happens, it's, again, a slippery slope here. The next thing that could easily happen is that you get pulled into shady dealings. If you're not working for a godly and just employer and they see this, this tendency for you to operate in the way of people-pleasing, they're going to ask you to do more and more things that get into the gray area of morality. They'll say, hey, could you just do it for the team and maybe dangle a little promotion out in front of you? See, people-pleasing leaves us vulnerable. It's, it's, according to our culture, it is an acceptable sin. Like, oh, yeah, you, I hear it all the time. Oh, yeah, I'm a total people-pleaser. And you kind of brush it off. Say, like, but you don't realize that to operate out of a place of people-pleasing cultivates misery for you and for others. For you specifically in the, fact, in the fact that you are constantly chasing approval. You're playing this political game, always on a treadmill. And the moment you think you got it, oh, my boss is finally happy with my performance. Well, it's time to restart all over again because it's a new quarter. We got new goals. We got new sales incentives. Now, the only way to avoid people-pleasing, and this is the, the second S, is to have a surrendered heart. Here's what I mean. You have to realize that while you are to honor and respect your employer, to obey them in the Lord, you are ultimately a bond servant of Jesus. You are ultimately, your ultimate allegiance, your ultimate loyalty is to him. He is the ultimate. If you are a Christian, Jesus is the ultimate Lord and master of your life. 
Now, Paul references this several times. Actually, I think th- at least three times. You could probably squeeze a few more in here. But in verse 5, he says, Obey your master as you would Christ. He says, Do work from a sincere heart as if you are bondservants of Christ. Verse 7 that you would serve as unto the Lord. So all of this stuff, Paul is saying, he's, he's saying, yes, you, ha- you have somebody over you. You have authority above you, but there is a greater authority that you are accountable to, and that is Jesus. And when he says this, Paul puts God at the forefront of our minds when we are at work. Do you see this? Like, Work isn't a secular thing that you do that's, that's sort of distance, that, that there's some sort of dichotomy between your work life and your faith life. Paul is integrating these worlds that we so easily divide. He's saying all of work is sacred. Your job, you might not work for a church, you may not work for a ministry, you may not work for a nonprofit. Listen, your work is sacred work. Whatever industry you are in, I mean, as long as it doesn't violate the command of God, right? There, there's some professions that are not in line with the will of God. But if you have a typical American job, your job can be done unto the Lord. Therefore, it is a sacred work. Now, this also goes for bosses, too, because here, here the whole time... Um, Paul works his way through how, how servants, bond servants, are to respond to their masters and interact um, within the work dynamic, the workplace dynamics. But he says to the masters um, in verse 9, he says, listen, all of the things that I say to these servants applies to you too, okay? So you work as unto the Lord. You rule, you lead, you navigate your business in a way that is done realizing that you are subjected to Christ, See, if you are a master, if you are a boss, you have a master. You have a master who you are accountable to. Because Jesus is that master. He is the Lord, and he is the Lord who has given us work, both vocational work, like in the sense of where we go to make money to to provide for our family and our livelihood, but also Um, a work that is connected to the mission of God and making disciples, planting churches, renewing the city, or go to Matthew 28 to see the great commission of what that work looks like. Jesus has called us into work. He has equipped you with gifts to be used in service to him at work. And now, because we realize that we are serving Jesus, that everything that we do in our work is ultimately done for him, we are now freed from this pressure of people-pleasing. Because our ultimate aim as Christians is not to please our boss, though in obedience to Christ we want to honor our bosses. Our ultimate aim as Christians is to please the Lord. So our work is surrendered. Our hearts are surrendered to Christ. And verse 6 says, here is how you surrender yourself to Christ. It says, by doing the will of God from the heart. This is what it looks like to surrender your life to Jesus, doing the will of God from the heart. Now, when we talk about the will of God, you might think that's a big category. What do you mean by the will of God? Like, what, what exactly does that entail? 
A lot of people think maybe that this is very fuzzy, very, very um, subjective, nebulous, I guess, maybe. But when you read the Bible, when you become a student of the Word of God, there is more clear than there is unclear about what the will of God is. And so this ought to make us students, guys, that men and women who dive into their Bibles and read to hear the law of the Lord, what God wants from us. That, that we would imitate the psalmist in Psalm 119 who says, um, I, I seek you, God. I, I am hungry for your word. It is a lamp unto my feet. I will guard my heart with your word. I will orient my heart with your word. And in this, you are storing up God's word in our hearts. And what God is doing is communicating to us the will of God. Now, uh, we could spend another several hours talking about this specifically. I want to highlight a few things, a few very important things that I think that pertain to work, just very fly by over here, that, that what is the will of God for you as it pertains to your work? And the first thing that I want to say the will of God for you in your work is to honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. It's the fourth commandment. See, one of, one of the ways that we bring our work life under the lordship of Jesus is by setting aside a day devoted to the Lord for rest and for worship. That as Christians, we don't grind all the time. Now, don't give it like... The, the work of Christians is a lot of grit and a lot of grace. But there is rest for us. It is important for us to guard our hearts in maintaining work, rest, and worship rhythms. And part of that includes being here in the congregation of the saints on a weekly basis. See, this not only... This not only helps you in your discipleship and like unpacking the scriptures and saying, well, how, does, how does the gospel inform my life? This actually restores your soul in a way that you can go back and work even better. There, there's been studies, I don't have, really have time to go into, studies that have talked about how some of these companies are moving towards these long format vacations, giving some of their upper level management guys um, long seasons of vacation. And what they're finding that even when they lose that pay and basically it's going nowhere, they come back and they are more well rested, they have more to offer, they can contribute more to the company because they're operating out of a place of rest. God has built rest into our weekly rhythms so that we would rest in him and then go back to work. It is the will of God for you to keep the Sabbath holy. Now, the other piece of the will of God, I think just going right back up in Ephesians chapter five, the beginning of chapter six, is to work in a manner that does not cause you to neglect your spousal and parenting duties. See, the idolatry of work can get you sucked up into just the go, 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 go. You got your head down, the blinders on, it's all about the work. And if you're all about the work, you are neglecting the more important relationships that God has given you to pour into and invest in. So the will of God is for you to work in a way that acknowledges the sacredness of your children and of your spouse, the gift that it is. Third application, I think that, that you can 
pull this from the Proverbs. You can pull this from many other places. Uh, many of the epistles talk about managing your money wisely. The will of God for you in your work is to not be foolish with what you earn. To use it in a way. Uh, Jesus talks about money more than anything else, almost anything else. He talks about money more um, in the Gospels than he does about hell. Because there is a connection between your work and your finances. And what he's saying here is that we ought to, when we receive payment for our services, use that money wisely that reflects our allegiance to the kingdom of heaven. So that means that we give generously, that, that we offer tithes and offerings back to God, that we save our money, that we think about the future and are, are prudent with our finances, and then we live within our means. See, this is working out. The will of God is for you to use your money wisely that you earn. And the last three that I just want to hit real fast. Four, it's to work for a just employer. See, he says, doing the will of God from the heart. So if you are put in a, a job where you are forced to do something that is against your conscience or against the word of God, you may need to find a new job. We ought to be in, in having sincerity of heart. You, you cannot have these two masters. To have a sincerity of heart in our work means that we can actually, we have to be able to stand behind our work and be working for an employer. It doesn't have to be a Christian employer, but somebody who is operating fairly and justly. I've been watching uh, a lot of documentaries on the... Uh, um, oh, Hulu dope sick um, about the, the Sackler Purdue Pharma and, and just like some of the, the chaos that was going around this whole opioid crisis and just to see like, like what would it be like if I was a Christian in the ranks of Purdue Pharma knowing that there is some shady stuff going on, right? That, that would be an invitation from the spirit to exit. Some of us might have a job like that. We're, we're being asked to do things that are not God honoring, and, and part of this other piece that, that ties into this is to work morally and honestly, that our, our work would be done um, from a place of integrity. And the last piece is that we would work excellently, that, that we would go to work as Christians and offer the best of our industry. At least that, make, that makes it our aim, that we want to offer excellence back to God and to our, our city. I think that is the will of God for us in our work and some, some loose ideas brought together. But here embedded in this passage is this third S of the heart, to be servant-hearted. Bond servants obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Verse 7, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. This whole thing, even in the title of bond servants, means taking the role, not just in title of being a servant, but taking a disposition of servanthood. It's, it's having the mindset that God has placed me in this spot to be um, a benefit and blessing to other people. That I, I'm not there just to fill my obligations of what's required of me in my job descriptions. I'm to do it in a manner that communicates I am servant-hearted. 
that, that I'm, I'm operating in a way to elevate other people. See, this is one of the big pieces of our gospel identity. We, we talk about that. So we're, we're a, a family of missionary servants who are learning to live all of life under the lordship of Jesus. Servanthood. Jesus said, I, he didn't come to be served. He came to serve. And so in our imitation and discipleship of Jesus, we live a lifestyle of service. It's a way of life. That we would bless people in ways that goes beyond our job description. And what Jesus says is that servanthood is the true way to greatness. It's not being at the top of the food chain or, or the org chart. True greatness is the one who serves the most. Now, this, this all sounds good in theory, right? If we live in an in a ideal world, we say, okay, yep. That sounds nice, but when it comes to the rub of it, it is so hard to live like this, to go into work thinking I'm here to serve others, to elevate others, even at my own expense, that I'm to do it with a sincere heart, that I'm fully surrendered to Jesus. It's, it's so hard. It can be draining. And we think, okay, you're, you're telling me to do this, but I'm already overworked. I'm already underpaid. I'm underappreciated, and now you want more from me? This seems impossible. It seems exhausting, just draining. Like, how, how can I do that and then go home to my family and then give them my best? This is impossible, actually. To work like this, it is impossible. And if you try to do it, you will kill yourself trying. It will drain every ounce of your energy. Unless, unless you know the master who became a servant. Unless you know the master who became a servant who was killed for you. The one who left behind all power, all prestige. I mean, like, was up in heaven being reveled by the angels. He had all authority, yet he humbled himself, as we professed this morning. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He humbled himself. And he came, and he was a nobody. Jesus from Nazarene, does anything good come from Nazareth? What does he have to offer? What a, what a peon, taking the lowliest of jobs. I mean, the first part of his year working for his dad was a carpenter, and I was fairly respectable, but then he goes on, on the road as a nomad, unemployed. But even in his unemployment, takes a lowly position. Hours before he was betrayed and crucified, he was found sitting at the feet of his disciples. Those, those guys who had huddled up around him to, to kind of get a glimpse into the kingdom of heaven, and yet Jesus is on his hands and knees, and he's washing their nasty feet. This master who's become a servant, who was humiliated, whose dignity was ransacked, but not for nothing. He was humiliated and his dignity was ransacked so that we could receive the honor and blessing that was due to him. This is the master who became servant, who always operated with a sincere heart. 
Genuinely loved people. There was never a moment in Jesus' life where he was not actively loving somebody. Always had a genuineness, always eager to serve, always eager to bless, even in the times when Jesus would say, okay, I can't do that right now. Even in the times where he said no. He didn't just go through the motions. Jesus, bit by bit, piece by piece, poured himself out from the heart. A heart that was totally surrendered to the will of his heavenly father. So surrendered that he would even go to death on a cross. And do you know what Jesus was doing on the cross? Do you know what he was doing? He was working. Jesus was working on the cross. Ephesians 2.10 says that we are his worksmanship, created in Christ Jesus. We're, we're recreated. In, on the cross, Jesus is restoring and recreating humanity. He's restoring us to a relationship with work that has been fractured because of the fall of sin. The ground is cursed, and now Jesus is, is restoring, redignifying, uh, elevating, giving dignity to our work. He's beautifying us. Jesus is at work on the cross. And do you know what his first invitation to us is? Come rest. Come sit down. Hey, I, I'm preparing a place for you in my father's house. Come rest. Come rest in my work. See, Jesus says, this standard that you're being called to as an employee, as an employer, it is hard to keep, and you cannot do it in and of yourself. In fact, all of us have failed at this tremendously. I've got all kinds of, as I was preaching this, man, I was like, if I could just play a, a, what would you say, a low light reel of my time um, selling TVs at Target or, or selling cars at the car dealership, there would be a lot of case studies to say, all right, here's why you shouldn't listen to Sam. We all have those low lights. We all have them. We've all failed at doing this work in this manner that God has called us to. But Jesus says, hey, I have done the work for you, and it's finished. And you can come rest. See, that's what faith is. It's I can lay my deadly doing down. I don't have to keep striving. I don't have to keep working because I see that Jesus has done it for me. And in faith, I get to cash in on Jesus' paycheck, right? I get to enter into the kingdom of heaven and be with God and have a restored relationship with my master. It's like an eternal vacation in the kingdom of heaven. But there's still work there. Like, we get to still get to do work. It's the best of both worlds. It's vacation and work in the kingdom of heaven. But Jesus says, it's finished. Sin has been conquered. You don't need to justify yourself, which is what we try to do through our work. Now, as Christians, this means that we don't work in order to gain God's favor because Jesus has secured it. We don't work in order to earn our rest. We work from a place of rest. And think of it. That's why the Sabbath is the first day of the week. Sunday. You start your week from a place of rest. It's meant to be a reminder to us. We don't have to prove ourselves in our work. 
And when we experience this deep soul rest that we get in the gospel, we now are drawing from the Holy Spirit in a way that empowers us. In fact, if you, if you cap off this whole section, if you go back to the middle of, of chapter 5, Paul says, be filled with the Spirit. And the way, when you're filled with the Spirit, all of these things, the way that you, you are a spouse, the way that you parent, the way that you work, it all comes from the Spirit of God. And in this way, your work gets redeemed. You're actually empowered to do work in this manner. Not in yourself, but through the power of the Spirit. You're able to find joy and purpose in even the most meaning, uh, menial of tasks. You find joy. You're satisfied but ultimately, your work becomes worship. You do it as unto the Lord. You say, okay, Jesus, Jesus did way worse for me than scrubbing toilets. I think I can joyfully go in with that brush and give it a, a rip. You know, like even the most menial times, we see, okay, Jesus lowered himself down. For my benefit, I can do that for my boss. I can do that for my coworkers. In fact, it is for this purpose that we are saved. We are saved for good works. Not by good works, but for good works. That in our salvation, in our gospel position, our gospel identity, that we operate out of that in a way where we do good work. We do good hard work. We do good thankless work. The only way that you can live this out, the only way that you can have this kind of work ethic is realizing what Paul says here in verse 8. Check this out. This is my last S. I told you I got four S's. Here's my last one. It says, rendering, verse 7, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. See, the way that you can live this out is by realizing you have a salaried heart. Not only do you get to cash in on the check of Jesus, what he's accomplished in salvation to bring you into the kingdom of heaven, it says that every lost wage that we incur here, Jesus will repay us back on the other side of eternity. Every good and thankless and meaning, like what seems to be a meaningless act, will get repaid. Jesus sees what you're doing. Your boss might not see it, your, 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 your fellow co workers might not see it, but God sees it, and every good work will be repaid because that's the kind of generous and kind master that we have in heaven. See, when you have this in mind, when you have a sincere heart, when you have a surrendered heart, when you have a servant's heart, when you have a salaried heart, this is when the magic happens. This is how the gospel will change our city because in this change of heart, we change the culture of our work. We make an impact on our coworkers and our bosses and the people that are patrons of our employer. And as that culture is cultivated and people get to experience this, little by little, it starts changing our city. Little by little, people get a taste of the sincerity and servant-heartedness of Jesus through us. 
And I would say that if you're not becoming a better boss or employee, if, if these things are not something that you're increasing in in your life, then we're missing the gospel. And the, this morning, the call is to believe the gospel, to see that Jesus has finished the work for us. Here, we, we come to the table, and we see that his body was broken and his blood was shed. This is the work of the cross, that Jesus was ripped apart so that we could be mended together as his workmanship. And while you might, you know, if, if you were to keep a list of all the things that you've done right and wrong in your job, the list of things that you've done wrong would probably outweigh that you've done, what you've done right. And Jesus has forgiveness for that. Jesus has a way forward for you in that. Jesus is inviting you to come and rest. And from a place of rest, come and work as if unto the Lord. Father, we thank you that you are not a, um, a sectarian God, that you have not just uh, put the flag uh, in our Sunday mornings, but you are a God that claims all of life. Abraham Kuyper says that there's not one square inch in all of the cosmos where the Lord Jesus has not put his finger on and say, mine, and that is true of, of all of the created things, but also true of our lives. God, we want to surrender to you because only you are worthy. Only you, God, are the master who would leave his station to become a servant. No other God does that. And Jesus, we want to be like you. We know that our true joy will be found in you. We know that true greatness is found when we serve the way that you have served us. And so would this meal today enable us, give us a, a real spiritual power that as we go from here today um, and through the rest of this week, that we go with Jesus, that, that the work that we do is sacred, it's devoted to the Lord. And would you give us a real power to live this out, God? A sincere heart, a surrendered heart, a servant's heart, and ultimately know that we, are, we have a salaried heart, that you see our good works, and we will be repaid on the other side of eternity. We love you. We thank you. We ask that you would help us to work to renew our city as a spirit moves. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.